Well, last week we began a, uh, a little mini-series uh, called The Gospel Mixtapes, uh, and, and in it we are selecting uh, three different accounts from three different books uh, of the Bible, uh, of the Gospels, that John did not zoom in on. And so we looked at Matthew's perspective, uh, we're going to look at Mark's perspective, uh, and today we're going to be looking at, at what Luke has to share with us, and what I want us to look at today uh, is a passage that's typically known as the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, how many of you, just by hearing that, you, you, you think of someone in your family who is the prodigal son? How many of you might have a prodigal son or a prodigal sister or <laughs> prodigal uncle? Um, usually it's an uncle. Um, <laughs> I've got one of those. Another story, another sermon illustration. We'll save that one. Um, <laughs> but I think... If, if, we, if, we, um, if we focus this story on that person that you're thinking of, then I believe that we miss the heart of this passage of the prodigal son here. If we just limit this story to the younger brother in this passage, we are going to miss the most important thing that Jesus has to tell us in this passage here. And so the reason I chose this parable, one, John doesn't speak on any parables, so I chose a parable, but the reason I chose this parable was because I believe that this parable is the heart of the Christian message. And what it is, it's telling us, is that there are three prodigals in this passage. And that's the title of the sermon, the prodigals. There are three prodigals, and that there's two ways to avoid God, and there's one way to be saved. And so here, here's where we're going with this passage. Here are the three points here. We're going to look at the younger brother, the older brother, and the prodigal father. The younger brother, the older brother, and the prodigal father. And so when we look at this first, the younger brother, in verse 11, uh, it comes out of the gates here. It says, and he said, there was a man who had two sons. Now, in Middle Eastern patriarchal uh, society, one's inheritance came through your sonship, from being a son of a family. And so according to Jewish law, the firstborn son would get a double portion of everything the father had. And so if, if, if you had uh, two sons, like in the case of this story, uh, the, the older brother, the firstborn, would receive two-thirds of the father's inheritance, and the younger son would receive one-third of the father's inheritance, right? This is how things worked, and it, you may say that doesn't seem fair. The firstborn gets everything, and some of you guys as younger brothers might be thinking that, right? And you're right, it's not fair. It doesn't seem fair, nor does it seem fair to, to the women, to the, the, the children here, which is all the more wild that Paul tells us in Galatians 3.26 that you are all sons of God through faith, that we all get brought into that family and we all get that status of sonship, but we're not going to go there yet. But here, here's the most important part, though. Those children receive that inheritance, that two-thirds or one-third, when? When the father dies, that's when they get their inheritance. When the father dies. And what we have here is the younger son goes to the father and says, I want my inheritance now. And in that culture, what that is akin to is saying, I want you dead. Dad, I don't want anything to do with you. Old man, will you die already and just give me my money? Can you feel the hatred and the rage and the dysfunctionality in this family? 
This is what the son is telling his father. I don't want you to live anymore. I just want my money and be gone. Like, and the only appropriate response to a Middle Eastern uh, father in this time would be to physically drive his son out of the family. He is now kicked out of the family. That is the response that, that everyone would have expected. But what does the father do? The father, in verse 12, tells us, and he divided his property between them. Mm. The father lets his son make his mistakes. As parents, that's really hard, right? <laughs> to let your children make the mistakes. To let them do it. He lets his children make the mistake and lets him go, and he divides the property. Now, the father's wealth is, is almost completely tied up in real estate. So to, to get the one-third of, of that inheritance, what that means is that the father would have to sell off a giant portion of his land to be able to give this to the son. And so think about this. What the son is asking is saying, Dad, I want you to sell your land. I want you to sell our history. I want you to sell our heritage in our home so I can go off and have fun. You see the, how shocking it is that the younger brother is asking these things. Verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Now we're not told how long it took for him to squander all of the father's inheritance, but it seems like it went fast. Because this, this squandering, and later the older brother tells us of what he spent it on. It says he spent it on prostitutes. He squandered it, and that, that, that word there is to, to throw one's possessions into the wind. It's to be kind of flippant about what you have. And so you can think about, maybe you've heard stories about this, first-round draft picks who get all of this money that they're not ready for, and they buy mansions and they buy boats, right? And they're tipping people with $100 bills or more, and they're reckless with it. And that word reckless is where we get the word prodigal, that they are reckless with it. And usually when we think of prodigal, we think of, you know, the person you thought of, that uncle or whoever it may have been. That, that, that wayward, wild person. And, and so I assume that's what we think of when we think of prodigal. Someone who is running from God. But the word prodigal actually means recklessly extravagant. It means having spent everything. That's all it means. Recklessly extravagant or having spent everything. And that's what the younger brother does. He does spend everything that the father gives him. He spent the family's history and he's wasted it on these quick highs and how quick it just, it just fizzled away. Now, he's got nothing left. And so what does he do? He's now forced to just take up any job that he can get. And so he goes and he's feeding pigs on a farm, which anyone here would say it doesn't sound like the most desirable vocation. But in, in that day, that was even worse than what we might think of because for, for a Jewish person, this was something that made you physically unclean, right? So it was one of the most undesirable jobs to be able to feed the pigs. And, and so he's clearly taking whatever job he can get. And how many, what's, what's the worst job you've ever had? This could be an icebreaker for you at, at lunch. 
worst job you've ever had. And I know you can think of those. And how physically demanding and how painful it was to do that job. And not always, but sometimes, not only is that job so physically demanding and, and grinding on your soul, uh, it usually, but not always, doesn't pay that well. <laughs> and it makes you hate the job even more. That, that, that is what happens here. Because not only is it, is it degrading to his humanity that he has to do this because it's violating something that they thought was unclean, but two, he's clearly not getting paid enough to do the work he, he, he's being paid to do. He's not able to meet his needs because it says that he is so hungry that he is longing to eat the food that the pigs are eating. Like he's pining for pig food. And he just had this huge inheritance given to him. They just squandered. And so I just ask you this morning, is there someone here today who has been running from God? You've been running from God for so long, and you may not be eating pig food, but you may be feeling beastly this morning. You may feel as if you are in the far-off country, and you realize, I've squandered everything. Is that you? Have you hit that rock bottom? Are you living like a prodigal? Verse 17 says, but when he came to himself. Mm. When he came to himself. Means he's, he's waking up. He's waking up. He's having an awakening. The scales are falling from his eyes. He's waking up to hitting rock bottom, that he has hit rock bottom, and he, he's starting to say, I, I can finally see myself for who I am, and I don't like the person I'm becoming. You ever hit that day? Or you've hit rock bottom, and you're like, I don't like who I'm becoming. I've, I'm, I'm at the very, I'm as far low as I can go. Some of us are, know people like that, and we're praying they hit rock bottom so that they can come to themselves. And so I pray that you hit rock bottom if that's you, if you are this prodigal, running from God, spending everything. I pray you have a prodigal son moment this morning. And you come to yourself because if you do, look what happens in verse 17. He says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Do you see the repentance in his heart here? Like he say, he's saying, I, I forfeit all rights to my sonship. I just want to go be one of your hired servants, Dad. Treat me as the lowest of lows. In verse 20, and he arose, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, the father saw him. Oh, the father must have been looking for him. And he felt compassion. He didn't feel rage. He didn't feel bitterness. He felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. Do you see this here? Like while a long way off. And he feels compassion and runs to him. In, in Middle Eastern culture, patriarchs didn't run. Little children ran. 
Women might run, young men might run, but older men did not run. They would have to lift up their robes and bare their legs, and they wouldn't do that. But the father doesn't care. (laughs) He sees his son a long way off, and he runs to him. And what is the first thing he does? He embraces him, the very first thing, and kisses him. Like, do you see the love that's right here? Like, it makes me think of those soldiers who return from, from a long separation from their families, and there's, the, there's this bear hug, and they kiss him. I mean, that alone, and kisses him, is a whole sermon. Like, that's how God sees you. He loves you that much. And he wants to embrace and give you a kiss. Do we think of God like that? Do we think he loves us like that? I doubt we do. And so the son comes up with his rehearsed apology, the way we might be coming up with our rehearsed apology, and says, you know, I'm sorry, Father, you know, make me a servant. But the father interrupts him, which I love. (laughs) Verse 22, but the father said, he didn't let him finish, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. (laughs) Uh, What is the father doing here? He is showing his son that you are accepted. You have a place here. He says, bring the best robe. Whose robe would that have been in the family? That would have been the father's robe. You get my robe. Give him, the, give him a ring. What ring is that? It's the signet ring, the family ring with, with a symbol on it, meaning I'm bringing you back in to be an heir. You took the third of my estate and you squandered it, but I'm bringing you back in and I'm going to give you a now diminished third of what I have, but you are now an heir again. Put sandals on his feet, shows you how destitute the son was that he didn't even have shoes, and then kill the fattened calf. Let's have a feast. Let's have a party. Because my son was dead, but he is alive again. Do you see the, the joy the father has to see his son coming back? The joy God has when a sinner repents and comes back to him. Uh, like this is, this is alone its own sermon. But it's not. There's something that doesn't feel right in the midst of all of this. There's kind of an an uneasiness throughout this passage because where is the older brother in the midst of this? And that's where we get to the older brother. Typically, the oldest sibling is, a, is the parent pleaser. How, you know, how many of y'all are the, the oldest siblings? Yeah? Yeah? <laughs> Typically, you are the parent pleasers. You're the ones who are the rule followers, like to obey, uh, typically, right? Uh, and usually, the, the youngest who are, who are the youngest in the family? Okay. You're usually the rebels. You're the ones who, who like to do your own thing, pave your own path. Uh, you know, bend the rules, break the rules. Um, and then you have the middle children, like me, anyone, middle children, yeah. You get lost in between, yeah. <laughs> Somebody think about me. Uh, we dabble in both, right? Um, <laughs> and so... You've probably been taught your whole life that here, here, here's, what it, here's what it means 
to be right in this family. It's to obey the rules. And you may not have been taught that exact phrase, but here's a way that you may have been taught it if you are a younger or middle child. Why can't you be more like, hmm, <laughs> you ever heard that? Why can't you be more like your brother? Why can't you be more like your sister? Because we are taught that obeying the rules means that we are good. And I want you to pay attention. Because this morning, the older son was in the field when all of this happened. And as he comes to the house, he hears, you can imagine, hearing the muffled music as he's coming up to the house. He, he can hear the, the laughter and the dancing. And he's annoyed by it. Why didn't I get told about this? Why didn't anyone consult me about this party? When he hears that the party happens, here's his, his response in verse 28. But he was angry and refused to go in. Why? That's the most shocking response here. This is the greatest day in the father's life. His son, he said, was dead, has come alive again. The greatest day in his father's life. He says, let's kill the fattened calf. In that day, people rarely ate meat, let alone the fattened meat. And so to kill the fattened calf would have fed about 75 people. And so this was a, a huge party that the father was putting on. Maybe the biggest feast and show that the father has ever put on. And what's happening here in this big event, as everyone's celebrating laughing, the older son is pouting outside just grumbling. Can you imagine this bitter man just sitting outside, just like, I can't believe the old man just wasted all of my money on this kid. He's going to do it again. You know he's going to take the money and run again. You just imagine the, the bitterness and the anger of this older son who doesn't want to join the celebration because he realizes it's costing him his inheritance. In verse 29, when he's talking to his dad, he says, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. The brother is so consumed by the issue of fairness that he can't rejoice at the transformation that's come to his brother. He can't rejoice over this kid that's been dead is now alive again. Like, and all he says is, look at all the years that I've served you. I've never disobeyed you. And what do I get? Nothing. You never slaughtered a goat. My friends never saw me as, as the life of the party, as your precious son. And what Jesus is showing us in this parable is this story is not just about one lost son. It's about two lost sons. Do you see this? Both the younger brother and the older brother want nothing to do with the father. They just want the father's stuff. Mm. They just want his stuff. The younger brother asks for the inheritance boldly and brashly, and we can see how despicable that is. But the older brother is a little more sinister. He looks the part, he keeps the rules, but he is just as lost. The younger brother is a prodigal in the way that he spent everything recklessly, but the older brother is a prodigal in the way that he invests everything on himself. He is reckless with his view of himself. He is self-centered, self-righteous. It is all about him. He is investing it all on him. 
And so he is deeply selfish, deeply self-righteous. Look what I've done. I've kept the rules, and so you owe me. Tim Keller shares, one of his seminary professors says it this way, that the main barrier between Pharisees and God is not their sins, but their damnable good works. Their damnable good works. And that's a hard saying, but think about it. We think sin is simply breaking the rules, but this passage shows us that sin can also be keeping the rules for the wrong reasons, with the wrong motives. I mean, how many joyless Christians do you know? How many Christians do we know who just feel so angry? Older brother types are deeply angry, deeply controlling, and usually unhappy people. Richard Lovelace says it this way, these people are people who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus apart from their present spiritual achievements and are subconsciously radically insecure persons. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness, and a defensive criticism of others. Is this hitting home with anybody? Here is the good news, though. This is not just a judgment. This is a, this is a, a call. This is a welcome. Because how does God, how does the father treat the older brother? Verse 31. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. He says, son, child, come into the party. Everything's yours. It's not a competition between you and your brother. You have everything. You have me. You have this status, this presence with me. He just was brought back into it. Let's celebrate together. And so do you see Jesus pleading with the older brothers? Pleading for you to come into the party. And so what we're seeing here is the picture of a prodigal father. The prodigal father in this passage is it's just this beautiful image here. Like, we, we're wondering, will the family be reunited? We're wondering, you know, just after, as all these thoughts pass through our minds, the story ends. And we don't know if the older brother ever goes into the party. It's a cliffhanger. And it's meant to ask the question, does he go in? And it's meant to beckon the person to say, listen, to shake you awake. Listen, come in to the party here. Like... The real audience of the story is the religious leaders and the elder brothers. Jesus is pleading with his enemies to respond to this message. All throughout this passage, we're seeing the reckless love of the father who is holding nothing back in his love for the younger brother and the older brother. He gives grace upon grace upon grace to these two children. He's throwing a party that, that costs him a lot. Right? The father is throwing this huge party to bring the son back that costs him a lot. And then it's going to cost the older brother something to bring him in because now he's getting a diminished inheritance because of this. And so what we see is that forgiveness costs something. Forgiveness always costs the person forgiving. And they're being brought into this to forgive and to forgive and to forgive. We're throwing the party. But then you see the father sh showing this forgiveness to the older son. 
and just being patiently waiting and talking to him and entreating him outside the party. Come in. And so we see the great patience, the great love, the great cost, the great grace that he gives and gives and gives, and it's just so moving. But that's not the target of the story. The target of the story is not to meant you to move you emotionally, because who this, is, this story is meant to be for. This story is not meant for the wayward sinners, but the religious people who do everything the Bible requires. The original listeners to this parable were not thawed into tears and moved by this story. They were actually flabbergasted. They were disgusted. They were infuriated of what Jesus had to say by this. Jesus' purpose is not to warm hearts, but to break categories of who God's love is for. Who's his love for? And if we go on back to the beginning of this chapter, we start seeing who Jesus is telling the parable to in verse 1. He says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled. I love that word. <laughs> grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Like you can hear the disdain. He even eats with these sinners and these tax collectors. Tax collectors were, were among the most ostracized people because of their work. They were, they, it was seen as dishonest and, and immoral. And the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders grumbled. You would associate yourself with them? And what this passage is preaching for us is that the gospel is for the outcast. For those on, on the outskirts of society. And so... Those to whom you might be embarrassed to be seen with is who Jesus is eating with. The gospel is for them. Matthew 21, 31 says this. Jesus is telling the religious leaders, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Woo. <laughs> Jesus goes and he eats with the sexual outcasts. He eats with the racial outcasts. He eats with the political outcasts. This is who Jesus goes out to. And so who is it that you see is too far out for you to be associated with? Who is that? When was the last time you invited someone from the queer community into your home to break bread? When was the last time you had someone who didn't look like you at your dinner table? Jesus is inviting you to be in conversations with people who you don't agree with on everything, but you're talking with them and you want to talk with them and pray with them and love them and, and do life with them, right? Jesus saying, this is who you should be breaking bread with. And what Jesus is associating himself with is the people that the religious leaders would never would. Jesus wants us to follow suit here. He is pleading in love with his deadliest enemies. And he doesn't repay evil with evil saying, ah, oh, now you guys are going to get what you need to get. He loves not only the younger brothers, but he also loves the older brothers too. Right? <laughs> and until we can see that we are just as lost... As the younger brother, if that's you as an older brother, you won't ever come to Jesus. Jesus wishes all rule breakers and rule keepers to come to him. Do we want that? Or do we wish some people would never come to Jesus? Do we wish them dead? Jesus wants them all to come to him. In this passage, he, he speaks with the Pharisees and the scribes at the beginning, and then he tells two parables before this parable. It's the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. In each of those parables, the person who loses something goes and retrieves it and comes back with it, right? 
Now, in this passage, does anyone go after the younger brother? No. Why? The, the importance is in the contrast here. No one goes after the younger brother in this time. And by placing this parable next to these other two parables, Jesus is inviting us to ask, who should have gone after the younger brother? Whose responsibility was it? And the answer is, it was the older brother's responsibility. The older brother should have gone after the younger brother and said, you're being an idiot. Come back to the family. Don't you realize what we have here? That was the older brother's responsibility. But the older brother gave up on his younger brother and said, you're too far gone. Good riddance. And so typically we think of this passage and we say, ah, so, I feel so bad for the younger brother, the prodigal son, the one who's so far gone from God. But if we actually look at this passage in, 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 these, lie, in these eyes and go, well, who should have gone after the brother? It should have been the older brother who gives up on his younger brother, who doesn't go into the, to the feast. And so who should we feel bad for in this case? The younger brother comes back to God. The older brother is left outside. Maybe there's a reason the younger brother left. Maybe there's a reason he left his older brother in the first place. And so the sad part is that the older brother doesn't even realize how far gone he is. And that's how dangerous the older brother's position is. Jesus is pleading with those who are imprisoned by their rightness. The younger brother comes to the end of himself. He hits rock bottom. And he reaches out for help and salvation. But the older brother believes he's good and needs nothing. And so I just worry, is that you? Do you actually see your need of Jesus? Or is your rightness getting in the way of that? Remember at the end of the story, who is it that's feasting with the prodigal father? It's the younger brother. Let's not be the older brother standing outside grumbling. And so whether you're a younger brother or an older brother type, see the prodigal love of the father here who invites you into the party because there's only one way to be saved and that's by grace alone. And thankfully, unlike the younger brother, we actually have a true older brother who leaves not just his land and goes to the next country. We have a true older brother who leaves heaven and comes down to earth and brings us back into the family and invites you into the family. And at great cost to himself, Jesus brings you into the family by his death and brings us into the family of God. And so you now have the, the father who runs to you and embraces you and kisses you. Do you want to come back home? Come to him by grace and grace alone. Let me pray for us.